I want to start off this morning by asking you a profound question. Why do you do what you do? Why are you here? Why why do you do the job that you do? Why do you spend the time the way you spend your time? Why? What's your reason behind the way that you are living? I hope you'll forgive me for asking why so much. I have a three-year-old daughter, and if you know anything about this stage, is that they are known for asking the question, why, constantly. Daddy, why does it rain? Daddy, why is the sky blue? Why do babies have teeth? How, why do birds not talk? You know, all these random why questions, I don't know the answer. You know, toddlers, they instinctively ask why. Uh, and I think it's actually a very good instinct that we lose as we get older, right? Uh, and I actually think it's really healthy for us to be constantly asking ourselves, why? Why am I doing what I'm doing with my life? Why am I doing what I'm doing? And business leader Simon Sinek, uh, he says that the key to success in business is to start with the question, why? You see, most companies, they start with the question, what? What do we do? And we want to tell our customers what we do. We are a computer company. We make great computers. You should buy one. And Sinek makes the claim that uh, Apple is able to sell more computers uh, or computers that are higher priced because they start with telling people why they do what they do. Uh, Sinek says that Apple basically tells people that they believe in challenging the status quo in everything we do. And we we believe in thinking differently. And we believe uh, and challenge the status quo by by making products that are beautifully designed and user-friendly. And we just so happen to make great computers. Would you like to buy one? See, that's very different. Starting with why instead of with what makes a difference. Starting with figuring out why you do what you do instead of figuring out what to do changes everything. Because why is powerful. Why captures our hearts and our imaginations and it inspires us to action and to do great things. So what's your why this morning? What's your reason for doing what you are doing with your life? And we're continuing our sermon series this morning from Ruins to Restoration. And we're looking at a leader who started with why. Last week, Peter Smith preached to us about Nehemiah in his heart for rebuilding Jerusalem and its walls. And when Nehemiah hears that the walls are broken down, he is deeply moved. He fasts, he prays, he mourns. He has a burden. He has a why, a passion inside his heart that he cannot ignore. And so he is going to rally the people to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. It's a huge task, which they are going to accomplish very quickly. And so we're going to be looking at Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 17 through the end of chapter 3. And so if you're following along at home in your Bibles or on your phone, you can turn there. And I want to ask the question, how did a small group of people, this remnant of Israel, how did they in spite of all the opposition and obstacles, accomplish this wonderful task? Well, they started with why, and that's number one. Number one, the people worked for the glory of God from beginning to end. They worked for the glory of God from beginning to end. You know, Nehemiah, he is deeply burdened when he hears of the plight of Jerusalem and its wall. 
And so he arrives and he starts inspecting the wall. And then after doing some inspections at night, he's ready to share with the leaders his vision and his passion for this project. And I want to show you what he says to them. In chapter 2, verse 17, it says, Then Nehemiah says, Then I said to them, You see the trouble we, we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I'm going to come back to that phrase in a second. But I want to talk about the things that Nehemiah did not say. He did not say, Come and let us rebuild the wall and we will no longer be in danger. He did not say, Come, let us rebuild the wall and we will keep out foreign people. He did not say, Come, let us rebuild the wall and we will make our economy better. He did not say, Come, let us rebuild the wall and we will make a name for ourselves. No, that would be a Tower of Babel mistake. He does not say, Come, let us rebuild the wall and then God will approve of us. No. Nehemiah did not not say any of those things because he was not motivated by safety, by security, by finances, by nationalism, or by selfish ambition. The things that often motivate people, Nehemiah was not motivated by. What was he motivated by? He says to the people, we will no longer be in disgrace. You see, Jerusalem had not been fully restored since it was completely destroyed by the Babylonians in 587 B.C. And now at Nehemiah, it's now 445 B.C. That's 142 years. Uh, 142 years ago from now would be 1878. Can you imagine being an American and having Washington, D.C. being in ruins since 1878? How much history has happened since then? I mean, that would be a disgrace to any country, right? And America is not even God's people. How much more devastating for the nation that is in covenant with God. In fact, in Psalm 48, uh, it says this about Jerusalem. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise in the city of our God, his holy mountain. Beautiful in its loftiness, the joy of the whole earth. It's the city of the great king. God is in her citadels and he has shown himself to be her fortress. You see, Jerusalem was supposed to be unlike any other city. This was God's city. It is supposed to be beautiful, the joy of the whole earth. You're supposed to rejoice when you see the city. It's supposed to give glory and praise to God in the earth. And the fact that the city has been in ruins for 142 years is a disgrace. It's a reminder of exile. It's a reminder of the people's sin and their punishment. And to the surrounding nations that are watching, it looks like Yahweh, their Lord, does not care about them because he hasn't helped them rebuild. And they might be thinking, maybe Yahweh is not a God at all. Maybe he's not strong enough to help them rebuild. Maybe he is weak. Maybe he doesn't hear their prayers. And so the ruined walls, they are a bad testimony to the nations, to the people around them. I mean, it's kind of true even in our day when when churches or homes are completely run down, it's not a great sign of life and health in that place. Uh, And so when these walls are in ruins, it is a disgrace to God's name and God's reputation in the world. But with the wall rebuilt, it will no longer be be a disgrace to God's glory. It will actually bring him glory. 
It will restore his reputation in the community. And so Israel will then be able to fulfill their calling to be a light to the nations. So why are they rebuilding the wall? For God's glory. For God's glory. And so they say, Nehemiah comes to them, he says this, and they say, let's rebuild the wall. Let's do this. And so they arise and they begin. And then in chapter 3, the the actual rebuilding of the wall begins. And in verse 1, it starts with the work of the high priest and all the other priests. And they finish the first section, and then they dedicate that portion of the wall. Uh, Which is kind of interesting, because uh, in Nehemiah chapter 12, many chapters later, we're going to see a dedication of the entire project when it's done. But here we have a dedication of just this section of the wall, and we have no other separate dedications of any other section. And Tamara Eskenazi, in her, in her commentary on this passage, she believes that this was basically uh, the high priest's dedication of the whole project to God. And I love that because there's a dedication at the beginning and a dedication at the end. And so from beginning to end, this project is dedicated to the glory of God. So it's not about the people, it's about the Lord. And what a picture for everything in life, right? From beginning to end, let our lives be dedicated to God and His glory. From, our, from the womb to the tomb, let our lives be dedicated to God and His glory. From the beginning to end of every earthly project, of everything you do at work, of everything you do at school, let it be dedicated to God's glory. From the start of your marriage to its end, let it be dedicated to God. From your child's birth until their end, let it be dedicated to God. From the beginning of your career to the end, let it be dedicated to God. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians uh, uh, chapter 10, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. That's the best why you could have. Uh, the well, there's a well-known music composer named Johann Sebastian Bach. And when he, he would write, at, when it, and he, whenever he composed music for the church, he would write the initials SDG at the bottom. And that stood for the Latin phrase, soli deo gloria, meaning to the glory of God alone. And this phrase meant he was rejecting all the praise and honor of men, but that this would be to the glory of God alone. And so, oh Christian, at the end of every day, sign SDG, Soli Deo Gloria, this day, this minute, this hour, for the glory of God alone, and wake up every day with that intention in your heart and mind, and you will find joy and peace beyond what you could imagine. And so the people, they worked for the glory of God alone from beginning to end. That was their why. And after they, they knew their why, their reason, their purpose, now they have to face what needs to be done. What are they going to do? And that's how we get to point number two. Nehemiah confronted the brutal facts and always believed God would grant them success. Nehemiah, he confronted the brutal facts and he always believed that God would grant them success. And when Nehemiah arrives in Jerusalem, He takes time to inspect the walls, right? He goes throughout the night and inspects the condition. He wanted to thoroughly understand the problem and what it would take to finish the project. And so then when he comes to the Jewish leaders, he doesn't sugarcoat anything. 
In verse 17, it says, he says, You see the trouble that we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and the gates have been burned with fire. It's not good. See, the first job of a leader is to define reality. Here is where we are, and I'm not going to sugarcoat it for you. I mean, he, did not, he didn't say that Jerusalem is kind of in rough shape, and guys, we just need to spruce some things up here and there, and we're going to be good. No, it's in ruins. The gates are burned with fire. In fact, it's a disgrace to God and His name in our community. He wants to define the reality and confront the brutal facts of their situation. But He doesn't just share with them that. He also gives them reason for hope and faith. In verse 18, He says, I also told them about the gracious hand of my God that was on me and what the king had said to me. In other words, He says, look what God's done so far. God's been with me. I've been given favor with the king of Persia. God is in this. God is with us. God is in this project. And so with that hope, they start rebuilding. And then some local leaders of some, uh, the nations around them, they start ridiculing them. And we're going to talk about them next week. Uh, but Nehemiah's initial response is amazing. In chapter 2, verse 20, he answers these opponents by saying, the God of heaven will give us success and we, his servants, will start rebuilding. You see, he knew that God was with them and was going to give them the strength to finish this project with success. So Nehemiah confronts the brutal facts. The city's in ruins, the gates are burned, but he has unwavering faith, God is with us. And I'm framing the, this point by using the language of the business scientist Jim Collins, uh, who's done some massive studies on uh, successful businesses. Now, uh, the church is not a business, and, but there are principles that we can learn. Uh, all truth is God's truth. And Jim Collins' most famous study is called Good to Great. And basically, he studies uh, some companies that were able to go from uh, doing good, kind of at market level, to exceeding all of their competitors uh, over time. Uh, and they outpaced everybody else over many years. In other words, these companies, they went from good to great, exceedingly great. And he wanted to know, how did they do it? And uh, there were many principles that Collins and his team discovered, but one of them is that they were able to always hold these two ideas in tension, that they would confront all of the difficulties and challenges uh, uh, that they were facing with brutal honesty, and they would have the unwavering faith that they would prevail in the end and become a great company. And Collins gives many examples of this, but one example would be the grocery store chain Kroger. Uh, and in the 1950s, uh, around that time, Kroger was coming to the realization that the, the old, small grocery store model was becoming extinct. It was dead. Consumers at that time were changing. They wanted the supermarket. They wanted the one-stop shop with more options, with more products, with more cash registers, with more ease of shopping. And at one point, uh, at, this, at this point, Kroger was a more uh, mediocre company, and, they were, and basically, they had 100% of their business in this old grocery store model. But their leadership, they got, they got around the table, they looked at the facts, and they were brutally honest that if they did not change their entire business, they would die. And so, they decided to transform every single one of their stores across the United States into the new model. And they kept believing that if they did this, they could overcome and become a great company. So over several decades 
of Blood, Sweat, and Tears, by 1999, Kroger became the number one grocer uh, in the United States. While the previous number one, A&P, they basically had become a remnant of who, of who they were. Most people don't know who they are anymore. You see, I think there is a good spiritual principle here because it combines both radical honesty and radical hope. And these are biblical ideas that we need. We need to be radically honest with where we are as people and as a church and also radically hopeful that God is with us working in powerful ways. And it reminds me of Psalm 23, living a Psalm 23 life, that I'm going to walk through the darkest valley, but I'm going to fear no evil because God is with me. Yes, the valleys are dark. Yes, there are enemies, and I'm not denying any of those brutal facts, but I have the unwavering faith that God's going to prepare a table for me even in the presence and midst of my enemies. Surely, goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. That's what we need. Confronting the facts, but always believing God's going to carry us through, to carry his work in us onto completion. Now, friends, that doesn't mean that everything we do in life is going to be successful if we just believe, or successful in the eyes of the world, but we can be successful in God's eyes when we are faithful to the tasks and call that he has given us. And this is what Nehemiah did with the people. Our wall is in ruins, but God's going to grant us success. God is with us. So the people, they knew their why. They worked for the glory of God from beginning to end. And then they confronted what? They confronted the brutal facts of what they had to do and had the unwavering faith that they could keep doing it. And so then they had to ask, how? How are we going to get it accomplished? And that gets us to number three. A diverse coalition of people sacrificially worked together. A diverse coalition of people sacrificially worked together. So now we come to Nehemiah chapter 3. And it's the, this is chapter is the actual rebuilding of the wall. And I actually think this is a really fascinating chapter. There's a, there's a lot of interesting details going on here. And it begins with all, all of the priests, as we said before, who do the first section and then they dedicate it to God. And then we have some other interesting characters. We have the men of Jericho and the men of Tekoa. Now, these were towns that were outside of Jerusalem. And so these people, they are not going to benefit from the wall in any personal sense. It's not going to help their family. It's not going to help their business. It's not going to help their job. In fact, they're going to have to take time to come do this. So it's not going to benefit them, them personally at all. But they know their why. They are, they are not working for their own personal gain or benefit. They're working for the glory of God so that they will no longer be in disgrace in their community. And oh, people, how we need folks like that in the church who will serve and work for the glory of God, even though it doesn't benefit them personally at all. But they do it because they know their why. We need that. And then in verse 8, uh, we have some people from the guilds. Uh, these are the, our blue-collar workers. They're the, the goldsmiths and the perfume makers. These were kind of some of the trades that were going on back then. Uh, then verse 12, we, we have a ruler and his daughters, little daddy-daughter project. We, have some, we meet some other officials in this chapter as well. So we have kind of the ruling class who's helping. Uh, in verse 17, we have the Levites. This is the tribe of Israel associated with the work of the temple. 
And then there's several re references to just kind of regular folks who are working on the section that is next to their house, kind of just where they happen to be living. And so in this section of chapter 3, we have men and women, people from Jerusalem and people from outside of Jerusalem. We have religious leaders and common folk. We have blue-collar workers and we have white-collar workers. We have officials and we have the people. We have husbands and fathers and we have daughters. It is a diverse coalition of people that Nehemiah expertly organizes to get this project done. And in this chapter, there is a phrase that is repeated about 21 times. And it's some version of either next to him or next to them. And you might want to go through chapter 3 and just circle every time you see that phrase, next to him or next to them. And now, this is just part of the semantics of describing uh, how the wall is built and kind of goes in a sequential order. But it, I can't help but uh, being reminded that all of these people, they had to work together harmoniously. Each person's work is connected to the next. And they're going to be rubbing shoulders with each other probably. They're, they're going to be seeing each other over the next 52 days. Uh, they have to work together in unity next to each other in each, work, uh, each person's work connected to the other. It's an interdependent task. And that is a beautiful picture of the church of Jesus Christ. Men and women, people from various socioeconomic backgrounds, uh, church staff and volunteers, pastor and congregation, leaders in business, teachers, workers, carpenters, homemakers, children and teenagers and senior adults, all working harmoniously together to be a community for God's glory wherever he has placed us. And friends, that's how it's always been. You know, in our church Bible reading, we recently finished uh, the book of Romans. And in Romans 16, it's kind of one of those passages you might be tempted just to skip over uh, because it's just a big, long list of greetings that Paul is giving. But Romans 16, it reminds me a lot of Nehemiah chapter 3. And Paul is greeting different people, and I just want to read a few of them. Uh, he says, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. Greet Mary, who worked very hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. Greet Ampolitus, my dear friend in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our co-worker in Christ, and my dear friend Zacchaeus. I love how Paul describes different people. Dear friend, uh, someone who works hard for you in the Lord. Co-worker in Christ, outstanding among the apostles. And he lists men and women, Jews and Gentiles, brothers and sisters who are all working, co-workers who are working very hard in the Lord. See, we're not working on a literal wall, but the church is working on the glorious project of God's kingdom come in our midst. And we are a diverse coalition of people, sacrificially working together until the job is done. In the generation of Nehemiah's day, they sacrificed their time and their money, and they worked in unity until it was complete. And we can do the same in our generation. So let me recap what I've said. The people in Nehemiah's day, they worked together for the glory of God from beginning to end. That's their why. 
Then they confronted the brutal facts and they always believed that God would grant them success. They faced what they had to do. And then how do they accomplish it? A diverse coalition of people sacrificially working together. That's what they did in Nehemiah's day. What can we do? Well, I want to give you three suggestions. Number one, you need to know your why. What's your why? What's your reason for living? Why do you do what you do? If your why is anything else besides the glory of God, friend, you will not find true happiness in this life. Jesus said, if you want to find life, you, should, you lose your life for my sake, and then you will find it. When everything you do revolves around the glory of God, it will fill your life with joy and peace. It is so worth it. Know your why. Number two, we need to know our why as a church. Why do we do collectively what we do? Are we here for ourselves? Are we here for our, pers- for our personal benefit? Are we here to make a name for faith covenant? I hope none of these things. Our why should be the glory of God in South Wheaton and the surrounding communities and that we do all that we do of connecting people in community, growing disciples of Jesus, reaching people for Christ. We do all of that because we want to glorify God as the people of God in South Wheaton. That's why we do what we do every week, every Sunday, day after day. And then finally, number three, I would encourage you to find your place on the wall. We all have been gifted by the Holy Spirit. You all have something to offer. Every single person is of value in the community and the job requires everybody working together sacrificially and in unity until uh, the job is done. And so find your place of where God might be calling you to know your why, to know our why, and to join in with what God is doing. That's what they did in in, uh, the days of Nehemiah. They knew their why. It was deep within their hearts. And they did this because God had rescued them out of exile. His gracious hand was already on them. And so they were already motivated to live for the glory of God who had rescued them and redeemed them by His grace that they didn't deserve. And today, it's the same for us. We don't work hard to earn God's favor and grace. He's already given it. We don't work hard because we want to get right with God. It's because He has already made us right through Jesus Christ in His death and resurrection. And so we're motivated to glorify the one who gave His all for us and for our salvation when we didn't deserve it. While we were still enemies, Christ Jesus died for us. And that's why we keep going. And so Jesus now invites us to the freedom of repentance and to live for yourself, not any longer, but to live solely Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone, and to find your place in his kingdom as you serve alongside other brothers and sisters until he comes again or calls us home. And that's where true joy will be found. So, friends, this morning, may, be, may the glory of God be the reason why you do all that you do.